uh, sitting together this morning, the cultivate exercising one's mind to see that it can actually, on command, relax and stop grabbing at things and let them go through. It's really mind exercises for uh, allowing the mind to relax in order to be able to have an, a direct insight into what is true, what, especially what's true about the nature of suffering. When you think, if you step back all the time and say, what did the Buddha teach? He said, I came to teach one thing. I came to teach about suffering and the end of suffering. My father, who I admired a lot, who was a consummate teacher, used to say to me as I was growing up and he was preparing lesson plans for the next day, I know many of you are teaching in one place or another, he would say, always tell people, Sylvia, what the aim and the motivation is of this teaching. Where are you going with it? And that will inspire people to learn what's this going to do for you, you know, that if you teach a person how to make a, a, a particular fish lure, it's quite clear they're going, to, they're going to catch fish with it. If I come to my gym at 5.30 on a rainy winter dark morning, uh, if I come at 5.25 and the gym isn't open yet, but 13 people are standing outside the door waiting for it to open, all suited up, they have a clear idea that something good is going to happen to them as a result. Nobody came there because they like to stand in the rain and the dark in November to get into a gym at 5.25, 5.30. But they're going there because they think I'm going to get in there, I'm going to go on the machines, and my health is going to be better. So they have a And I'll live better, I'll feel better, my health will be better, I'll live longer, I'll have more energy. They have an idea of where they're going. The Buddha taught what he taught, he said, in order to allow people to understand that although life is um, um, inevitably challenging thing because of the nature of change, not because it's awful, not because we're doing it wrong, but because things are always requiring the mind to adapt <coughs> to a new situation, that we needed a mind that so well understood that things change, that suffering is the imperative in the mind that things be other than what they are at any time. And it's really that imperative which is what counts as suffering. Sometimes we wish things weren't the way we were. We're sad about how things are. And we hope that they'll be different. But it's different to be sad and to hope things will be different and to work towards it. Just as we're talking about going to groups and hearing what can we do about healthcare, what can we do about war. We can do something so we can do it. Uh, in, in contrast to situations perhaps where we can't do something about something that is happening or had happened that we feel sad about. And to be able to say, I feel sad. A friend of mine called yesterday because there is some really heartbreaking thing happening in his family. And it can't be other giving the people, given the people in his family. It's not going to change. So without, you know, without the details, it's heartbreaking that people who essentially love each other and would like not to hurt each other are obligated by their views of what's right and what's wrong not to be able to be present with each other at a particular important time in their life. Said so they can't do it differently. That's the way it is. It's heartbreaking. But in order but for the mind to be able to say, I'm incredibly sad, but I'm not suffering because this is just what it is. It couldn't be different. The wise mind is the mind that says, this is what I've got. It's just the way the cards fell. You know, I wish it were other, but it's not. 
wisdom is really the key of what the Buddha taught, and the and the connection between wisdom and the end of suffering is always what I see as the goal. And people say, "Well, what would you like to be?" Actually, I've been reading uh, Mingyur Rinpoche, and uh, he says the goal of life is to be happy. But I think the understanding of happy is to be wise, to not become stuck in a, a delusive understanding that causes the mind to get caught in an imperative. And I see that as a clearer and clearer way of saying what it is that we're all doing here. That if I can keep my mind clear, I wish it were this, but it isn't. Okay, this is how it is. So wisdom is where we're going. Sila Samadhi Panya are the development of morality, the development of mind training that's able to say, well, you know, I'm going to relax my mind. And in that relaxed mind, not caught and held captive by a certain idea or a certain view, I'll be able to really have a direct understanding about the potential of the mind to rest in happiness, contentment, even um, delight in the stuff of the world. The, the world is so full of a number of things. I think we should all be as happy as kings. Isn't that Robert Louis Stevenson? Uh, one of the things that Mingyur Rinpoche talks about in his, uh, in his book is he said, uh, think of the experience of a four-year-old who goes to an art museum uh, with uh, his or her parents. And said, so this child is not at all... Uh, the parents are thinking, wow, this room has more of the great masters than that other room. And look at this. This is, uh, this is the Mona Lisa. So small. Well, I just thought it was so small. Or this is sky over Toledo. I thought it'd be much bigger than this. So this is better. Or that you should go in the other room or the Renaissance painters or really the Impressionists. So this child is not worrying about what room she is in or who is better than what and actually might be equally delighted by the floor tiles in that room or the different shoes that people are using or the fact that some people can bring a helper dog into a museum and other people can't. I, I remember years ago taking my now 22-year-old grandson to an Oakland A's game, and I took him with my, um, with my good friend uh, Mary Kay Sweeney, who's the uh, director of Homeward Bound, who many of you know, and Mary Kay and I were so excited about taking Colin to a, a baseball game. And we drove over to the East Bay and we went to the game. And we got back and he had a good time. And what he remembered was we had come back and the tide was out along the bay. And there's a place where if the tide is out, you can see all these halves of tires sticking out of the mudflats. And he was fascinated with the tires sticking out of the mudflats. The game was okay, you know, but, but the tires and the mud... It's a, it's a mind that delights in whatever is interesting, you know, without a predetermined idea of what it has to delight about. So to have a mind that's not pre-programmed for this will be good and I'll like it, or, this isn't quite as good as I thought it would be. At the end of the... I'm coming. At the end of the uh, Metta Sutta, it's, uh, there's a line about the causes of uh, really a happy mind, a mind that doesn't, is, re is not reborn into suffering. It says, by not clinging to fixed views, by not clinging to fixed views is probably the most, at this point anyway in my life, the line that captivates me the most. What are we going to say? Oh, I was just going to ask if you would repeat 
Oh, the world is so full of a number of things, of or so many things. I think we should all be as happy as kings, because there's all this stuff, um, and mud flats, you know. And <laughs> look at that, and look at that. So there's a way of seeing that middle path of samadhi training as just the direct experience of there is happiness and it is our inherent nature, this uncomplicated mind, and we complicate it with stuff. Uh, I'm fond of, maybe I told it too much, but maybe I haven't told it in enough months, of uh, seeing 20 years ago Larry King when he was interviewing a Swami on his early, one of his early programs and people called in and in a yoga tradition, Aswami, and uh, with provocative questions, more provocative than, because in those days, yogis and religious um, gurus were oddities. And uh, they had provocative questions and whatever they asked, he answered so calmly and so clearly. Sonia Sotomayor is doing a very good job of that same thing now. I am so rejoicing in her ability to hear the same provocative question again and saying, well, and then covering that in the same nice way. Say, go, Sonia. <laughs> and at the same time, every time I think to myself, I'm about to have an angry thought about this intent to ambush, I think to myself, I can combat this angry thought by saying to myself, we still live in a country where she will be installed, she will be confirmed, we can have open hearings, we can have television hearings, we still have enough of a democracy to have a rule of law and have everybody watch those hearings and everybody make their own decisions. And I am very proud of that. And I'm very proud of her. Um, you know, I suppose we're all proud for different reasons, but I look at her and uh, what comes out, and, and she's so poised, and I think, uh, this, is, this is just, you can see how my mind works. I think, um, uh, are you using these breaks to take your glucometer, take your insulin, keep your energy right? Who, who else is thinking about her diabetes? <laughs> I have diabetics in my family, so that I have to think about it. <laughs> I don't have to, but that's one of the grids that comes through. You're doing great. Take the blood sugar. <laughs> Everybody puts the material through their grid the way it is. Uh, to be able to keep the mind just fixed on where it is that we want to see and not to get distracted by the arising of anger or anything else that clouds the view. That's that middle path of uh, really uh, practicing to, to recreate moment to moment a mind that's relaxed and has the widest view. That's the path of mind training, the path of uh, bhavana, sila samadhi, the path of uh, samadhi. The last one is... Uh, Panya, which is the path of wisdom, which is really what we're doing now. We're talking about these things. I'm not ready to make a discrimination between any of those paths and say, really, it's about samadhi. I think it's about samadhi, but I think it's about talking about samadhi and talking about these concepts 
and approaching them intellectually and reading books like Minyar Rinpoche and learning about it. And then suddenly I read something that I've heard for 20 years and all of a sudden he says it in a new way. And I think, ah, I got it. I used to think I had it. Now I really think I have it. Next week I'll read somebody else and I'll think, ah, I thought I had it, but now I did. So I mean, the, the intellectual path is a perfectly wonderful path. The first of the paths, morality, sila, is the path of virtue training. And that gets us to what we have been talking about for these uh, couple of weeks. There are, in, the, in the Theravada tradition, there are, there's a traditional list of ten virtues of the mind. They're often called virtues of the heart, but mind and heart is the same word in, in, in that tradition anyway. And the folklore around this is that in prior incarnations, Siddhartha Gautama, who was the person who was thought to be the person who became uh, uh, enlightened as the Buddha, had had a full understanding of the cause and end of suffering and taught it for the rest of his life, who is the Buddha to which all the traditions refer when they talk about the Buddha, that the folklore or the truth, whatever it is about him, is that in previous incarnations, he had so thoroughly established each of these virtues that they were the prerequisites for his, in that lifetime, being ready for that full vision. It's a lovely, it's a lovely thing to think about whether or not it's actually true. It's lovely, I would also, I could put it the other way. I, I would could put it to, from uh, the point of view of if one had clear enough insight into the nature of how the mind works and how easy it is for the human mind to fall into suffering, the innate compassion of human beings would be so aroused that we could not be anything but moral because we would not want to hurt anybody anymore in this lifetime. There's enough hurt going on just by being a natural person and having to age and change and lose things and adapt. It's like you wouldn't go into a hospital and shout or knock over people who are in some way or another not stable on their feet. If I, if I stay aware of how much uh, challenge everybody operates on, sometimes we look around and you say, oh, those people, they're really challenged. Everybody is really challenged. Um, I was very impressed. I spent the weekend in Disneyland. I haven't been in Disneyland for 40 years, 35 at least. And I took two of my grandchildren. And my husband and I took two grandchildren to Disneyland. And there, was, there were a zillion things to think about. And one of the things to think about is how uh, diverse a population visits Disneyland how uh, much diversity figures in all of their presentations and how much a particular diversity of physical limitation is included in, in Disneyland. There's a great deal of consciousness around everything being, practically everything being accessible. Whole stages of the parade route are marked off for people in wheelchairs and they have ways of getting in there. Uh, there are special lines to help people from wheelchairs into the rides. All you have to do is be able to stand up and transfer, but you can go on a ride. And, uh, and I was very, very impressed with that and just appreciating the remarkable ingenuity of human beings to figure it out that they could do that 
and the remarkable uh, tenacity of human beings to want to stay in the same, in the same arena as uh, completely physically able people and, uh, and a, a culture which wasn't true 20 or 30 years ago that really made it possible for that to happen. And I think about, I was thinking a lot of gratitude for the Americans for Disability Act activists who made that happen. A lot of people signed petitions, like the, you know, like we're all signing healthcare petitions. Things happen. Picks up my mind to think that when I'm thinking about there are so many complications in life, what you can solve for people makes you feel better. Morality training, I think, picks up the mind because it so inherently uh, reflects back to ourselves our, our, it so naturally reflects back to us our inherent good nature that we feel better about it. You do something for somebody and then you feel good about it and your mind is lifted up. Your mind is lifted up. You become a little kinder. You become a little bit more tender about how everybody is trying so hard. Uh, the flight attendants who, against all odds, because the planes are small, are so kind and so thoughtful. It just so one of the things that we, I undertook to do in these weeks was to really f focus on, uh, in addition to the samadhi training and the wisdom training, which we're always doing, focus on paramita training, on uh, morality training. Because I, I would like to be able to say, first of all, all the trainings are inherent in each other. I can't imagine doing any of them without everything else being involved. And I would like also to elevate morality training to the, at least the status of meditation training. You know, in Buddhism worldwide, most Buddhists, even though in the United States we think of Buddhists as meditators, it's not actually true in, in Asia where the most Buddhists in the world are that it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a religion of meditators. It's a religion of people who revere the Buddha and who very much try, I think, as their practice to emulate the characteristics of kindness and compassion and hospitality and generosity that the Buddha taught, who really, um, um, for a very small um, percentage of Buddhists uh, in, a, in a Buddhist country, have the opportunity to devote themselves to a life of meditation practice. We think of monks, but the monks are a small per per percentage. Most people are living a life, if they're thinking of themselves as Buddhist, as, as cultivating these moralities. So I, that's bringing you all up to date. It took a little more than I thought, but we'll move along. Because I want to talk about three of them today. And now I'm going to talk a little bit, speed it up. I was trying so hard not to speed. But, um, but I, have a, I have a wonderful surprise for you from... Kathy Boyle. Where's Kathy now? There you are. In a minute, Kathy. So if you have your, I'm going to introduce you to the chart, if you don't have your chart. Everybody has a chart? There's a chart by near the back door. So, okay. Marty's going to get charts for people. Keep the chart. Bring it next week. Whatever we don't finish next week, Donald will finish. So we will go through the whole chart in the next several weeks. This chart was not made by the Buddha. What, what comes from the time of the Buddha 
was the list in the first in the first column of the ten qualities of the heart. Uh, the chart comes actually from me. I'm quite proud of it, and it's a um, it's a chart that I made eight or ten years ago when I wrote this book called Pay Attention, for goodness sake, uh, because I actually thought. Uh, that uh, for the sake of goodness, if you paid attention uh, for the sake of goodness, you would, we would become gooder, more moral, more kind. This is the path of kindness. And because when I went to school a very long time ago, uh, I, was a, uh, I was a chemist. I, uh, I know how to make charts uh, and flow sheets. And so this is essentially a flow sheet that you have in your hand of uh, what practicing each particular paramita would require, how you would practice it, what habit it develops, how it develops that habit, what supports that development, and how it ultimately manifests as the virtue in full flower. And um, so that's what I, I thought we would do these weeks. The thing from Kathy I'll tell you about in a minute because Kathy's a school teacher as well and she has provided us with a wonderful teaching tool which I'm going to give you. But I'm going to just tell you one more thing. Look at the three, numbers three, four, and five. Generosity, we did the first week. Morality, we more or less talked about last week. I was going to talk about renunciation this week. I am. I'm going to talk about it together with wisdom and together with patience which are the two that come after it. Because there's, uh, there's one thing that's true, I, I think, if you have an overlook of these, all these 10 paramitas, these 10 virtues, one of them is different from the other in a remarkable way. Can you imagine which one that was? One of them is quite a, is really, well, maybe energy, but Maybe energy, maybe energy. I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking particularly about wisdom. You can get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to practice generosity. I'm going to take every opportunity to see where I can do generosity. Today I'm really going to focus on truthfulness. I'm really going to do it. Anything someone says and asks me something, I'm really going to give them the straightest answer that I can. So I'm going to really think about what, you know, how, if I have to say it, how I can say it. But uh, you could actually be aware of how I could practice that. It's a little harder to get up in the morning and say, today I'm really going to be wise. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, today I'm really going to be stupid and, you know, <laughs> delusive and mess up. But it's hard to say why. Sometimes when we have a whole day on the parameters, uh, I save the wisdom for the lunchtime. And then I say, while you're eating lunch, eat lunch like a Buddha, however that is. Be as wise as you can, and then we'll report on it later and have everybody figure it out. But wisdom is often what we think of as the end point of the path, not a path to the path. But it, has a path, it is here on this list as a path to the path. I don't know why it is, uh, among other things. Maybe there were, in, the, in the Tibetan tradition there are six parameters. I'm not even sure if wisdom is one of them. It might be. Uh, there could have been nine parameters here. It was an oral tradition for 300 years. Maybe it got stuck in, maybe it didn't, but it's there. But I think to myself, as I was reflecting this whole week, 
I was realizing that renunciation is very closely linked with wisdom, as is um, uh, patience. If you skip down, I said, I'm skipping energy. I was thinking of renunciation, wisdom, and patience. Of, uh, that renunciation and patience are very intimately linked with wisdom. When we renounce things, um, uh, I really say, I'm giving this up. It's really, I think, mostly sustained by the, the, the wisdom, the stark realization that this that I'm giving up is no good for me. That when we don't, isn't that true? We mostly think about it as renouncing, uh, it comes up, uh, I'm renouncing um, the use of drugs or alcohol in excess or uh, too much television or we often think about it as the substances, substances that we ingest or um, uh, activities that aren't good. I, I, I've been sharing with you my frequent renouncing of television and then my frequent being seduced by it again and my conscious decision to unrenounce because I want to watch these hearings. <laughs> and my, but I, you know, in, in uh, this is this is maybe in defense of or as a rationale. Maybe it's ridiculous. Somebody else could tell me what came out. But at the same time, as the practice of being able to watch my mind and see what happens to it when I watch uh, uh, too uh, belligerent uh, a, a questioner, and I start to feel. Rrr. And watch my mind and realize that my mind is unpleasant at that point. And then I realize this person has to do this. I wonder how he feels about this. Maybe he feels embarrassed. He's got a whole constituency out there that he has to seduce into re-voting for him or voting for him, which he's going to... Anyway, I think about it. I am actually been thinking all this week about renouncing views more than behaviors. The views are much harder to renounce. The views of such and such a people are like this. So I see a person from a certain political party that I normally don't see eye to eye with suddenly saying something that I think is quite sage. And I think, well, then I have to renounce the view that this person is monolithic in how they are. They're a person. They change their views. And what a relief it is to give up uh, a view uh, my friend and uh, sometimes a visitor to this class, Tony Bernhardt, uh, says that he watches, listens to um, that kind of, um, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of the word. It's um, combative or interactive call-in radio programs of a confrontational political nature. And uh, he has as a practice listening, and his mind says, Rrr. And then he, one of his practices is being able to say to himself, I could be wrong. Maybe they're right. See, when I do that, I think, what if they're right and I could be wrong? Then I think, no, 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 they, they, they have it wrong. You know? But, you know, what do I know? You know? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll bring a magazine article next week that I'm now reading about but I'll bring it when I'm ready to talk about it. Anyway, the whole idea of renouncing a view, not renouncing thinking, and it's actually not even renouncing the view, it's renouncing clinging to the view. It's the word fixed view. 
Maybe it's this way, and maybe it's the other way. The old Sufi story is someone comes to the Sufi master, a, a, a couple in relationship, comes to a Sufi, Sufi master and says, we're fighting too much, uh, we want you to solve the fight. And the Sufi master tells one of them, say what's going on, and that person says, da 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 And the Sufi master says, that sounds right. And then the other person says, but, da 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 And the person says, Sufi master says, that sounds right too. And the assistant to the Sufi master comes up and whispers in his ear and says, listen, you just said both of these complainants were right. And he said, you're right also. You know that, but, you know, how to keep a mind where this way it's that way and that way it's that way. Renouncing fixed views. Let's just think about that. Because the fixed view is painful. That's the point. Not because the fixed view is necessarily the worst view or the best view, but because the nature of a fixed view is it blocks a whole view and it's painful. Skip down to patience. And I want to see that as a manifestation of energy. So we've now done, looked at renunciation and patience. Seems to me that patience is extremely close to wisdom because the nature of patience is the recognition that something that you wanted to happen now isn't happening now. And it's just not happening now. That means it's not, it's not time for it to happen. The most mundane example, which is I always end up giving, is if you go to the dry cleaner and you say, I've come to pick up my sweater. It says he has sweater ready Tuesday, and it's not as Tuesday. And they go through that whole thing, and they say, ah, oh, it's not here. There is no point to make a fuss. You could make a fuss. You could upset everybody in the dry cleaner. But the, the sweater will not materialize. It's not there. The only thing you do by fussing about that is upset yourself and everybody else. And whereas if you manifest patience, which is really manifesting wisdom, the sweater is not here, that's all. It's just not here. It will not arrive here. It will arrive when it will arrive, is what really is the wisdom, which preserves your relaxed mind, it preserves, preserves the proprietor, it preserves the happiness of everyone else in there who gets tense when someone is losing it. And it's a really a moment of delusive. Like, if I have a fit, it'll happen now, which is what, you know, a two-year-old might think when they fall down and kick and scream in an airport. I want to get on the plane now. You get on the plane when the plane is here. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to flag both of those because I want to talk about them more, but I, I, I want to use our 15 minutes now to introduce Kathy Boyle, who has came last week. Oh, here's another. Uh, let me pass this out. This has nothing to do with what I just said, but I want you to have it. It's a manifestation of uh, wisdom. And someone sent it to me, and I thought we should have them. It, was, it says, give this to women that you love. Irma Bombeck uh, wrote this, and it's a nice thing to put it on your refrigerator. Uh, if we had wisdom, we would, uh, um, we would use our days to live in the most gratifying way because we would remember that we have a limited number of them. And uh, I think it's Psalm 92 that has the phrase, um, teach us to number our days so that we can develop a heart of wisdom. And a heart of wisdom is, uh, 
when I think about that, teach us to number our days, teach us to have a heart of wisdom so that we would remember that there's a number to our days is another way of saying that. And how many of my days do I want to mortgage to being irritable about things not going my way? Or how many of my days do I want to mortgage to being caught in a fixed view? Anyway, that is not part of the lesson. It's just something I've been carrying around. Well, if you stay five minutes at the end, Ruth will get you one. <laughs> okay. Well, wait, Ruth, we have enough of these other ones? I have 60 of each copy, so again, I, I counted 60 people, but I know some people have come in. Well, I'm, 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 I'm very happy to give these to you, and I think we'll have time to give them out and maybe have Kathy talk about... Kathy, why don't I, why don't I give these out? Because there are three things to give out. This first thing that you're going to get is what Kathy brought last week and said, look, I did this as a homework after we had the first week and we talked about generosity. So, Kathy, come and talk three minutes about this, and then we'll talk about the other charts. And I said, please make one for everybody. Here you go. Okay, what I did was I went home and started thinking about generosity. I was involved with actually offering something to somebody who was having trouble accepting. So I tried to think, you know, I feel generous a lot of time, but I tried to think what went into it. So essentially what I did was broke it down to try to think about what goes into the abstract idea for me of generosity. So um, I kind of, first I thought, well, what is generosity to me? And these are just my ideas. They're um, what I came up with for me. And... Uh, what it is to me and how I would do it. But mostly I tried to think of my motivations for generosity and why I'm being generous. I, you know, we know intuitively, but how to, I really wanted to think about it. And in that moment, I was being generous. A week later when I was using us, I wasn't feeling so generous, but needed to be with my husband and, and was able to go through these and think, yeah, that's how I access generosity sometimes when I might not be shifting into that. So the motivations under, are under those of what my motivations are. Um, down below that next category is what may be needed. So things that I need, and those are really important for me, in order to be generous. And one was the awareness, even to look and see. Most of these are mindfulness, to see that somebody needs something, to be able to look at them and see. Um, for me to notice and, and figure out what is it that they need, what would be helpful. And then looking inside myself and thinking, well, do I have that? Is there some way that I can access that to offer that? Is something I have that I can offer and be generous to somebody? Um, and then the willingness to offer it. You know, sometimes I have it, but to be willing to give that. And uh, the willingness to part with something uh, that I can offer to somebody else and then to find a way that it can be accepted because that's really critical. Not everybody can accept offerings and it has to be a way that's palatable to them. So that's what may be needed as far as that goes. And then below that was ways that I might be able to be generous. And I wasn't, you know, so it's a smile, a kind word, encouragement. Sometimes it's something, money, or giving something, but usually it's just little things throughout my day, um, including things, as I think somebody had mentioned, victory to the other person, capitulation, an apology, that it isn't all just kindness. It's being willing to give up my way of looking at things um, and how people feel. And below that, the reflecting, meditating. What I've um, learned how to do is to take things and meditate and reflect on it and get the feeling of it so it isn't just the thinking about generosity. So imagining, um, first was when I was thinking 
about when someone's been kind to me, how it felt, what they did, what they offered, how I felt. So I get that sense of, you know, wow, this really felt good. And then thinking of different people have been generous with me because people have been incredibly generous with me. And then thinking times when I'd been generous. So again, what did I give? How did I give it? How did it feel? So kind of accessing that feeling. And then, um, and then thing I like to think about, I teach school and I do this a lot with the kids of, you know, when you give out a kind word, how many other people does that word go out to? That it goes out and out, it goes to their mothers, their mothers go to work, that it, it just goes out. So that interconnectedness, the loveliness of it all, which is how I see generosity, and I see actually all of them of tying into that. And then at the bottom, I put the 10 perfections because I don't see any of them really as standing separately. They all blend into each other beautifully. And so as I think of that, so that's, those are my thoughts, and they might not be anybody else's thoughts, but that was how I pursued it, and I found it afterwards. It really helped me. So then what I did was I made out a blank for that that um, could be used with generosity. It could be used with anything else. Of yeah, how I'm going to give out the blank. So it's kind of how to think about breaking up something that's abstract and complex that you know you believe and you know it's good, you know you live your life as much as you can that way, or I do. Um, and then, uh, but how to think about it, so what's meaningful to me about that quality, how, what it means to me and how I think about why I do that and how I can do that better. So, um, Are you a writer? No, I'm a school. I'm a resource specialist in the school, and so what I have to do is write a little pamphlet. We're on the way, buddy. Is break things down. I I teach kids and parents things that are hard to understand, so I work at breaking it down to make it easy. And I do that for myself because I don't. A lot of life I don't understand. And then the third one, which is now coming around, which is a kind of a. Uh, uh, branching out from that, you could do one of these each day. Mm -hmm. it's got a date. Well, right, I put the date. I was been doing these each day, and what I did was I took all those perfections, and I I put my own words for some of them. So some of them aren't the real words, and some of them are in another like joyful effort, I think, um, in another tradition. So that it's my words sometimes. Um, so I like, actually I do this throughout the day, but I was planning just doing it at the end of the day to think of a situation, any situation, and think, okay, how did I do what qualities, what perfections are within that and how, so that I really get, so I really think about the perfections, those ways that I'd like to be um, at the end of a day, and how did, how was that part of this interaction, um, and, and got to see, and I put there to do positive ones, to be sure to do a positive one every day, so I got to see ways that, um, that I was doing those. I also happened to do it one evening after having an interaction with my husband, and um, and, and afterwards, I looked at it, I thought, I, I was telling you, I flunked nine out of ten. Like, I covered nine out of ten of those that, that I blew, and it was so humbling. <laughs> you know, like, it wasn't just I blew it. You know how you blow it sometimes? Well, I blew nine out of ten of them. And so to tell my husband that was nice, and my daughter got to hear it, too. So that's, that's what that is. So, so, um, and the four R's I put at the bottom, I just do that afterwards with um, remorse, not remorse, regret. So, so listen, how many of you think, yeah. whoa, this is a very, very remarkable. Can I quick show this? Oh, yes, please. This, this is, I find if I put wow. things into a colorful way that these are linear thinking, that there's another way into the brain. It's kind of the back door, so just putting the perfections on here, like if you create something for yourself in color, that it it makes it more appealing uh, 
it, it's just so this just has the perfections on it. I took a picture of something I'd knit, and because I see knitting like these, you know how they all just kind of go together. So, but if you make something pretty for yourself that's appealing and that engages you and kind of soft about it, do you find this pretty and appealing? How many people would like it next week? Would you like this, or do you want to do your own pretty and appealing? All right. Well, this is what I'd like you to do. For isn't this remarkable? Yes. Does does this make you interesting to, to do this? I'll tell you what I am going to do as a homework this week. I am going to take at least this page, the one that's all the ten perfections. It's like a daily before I uh, go to bed at night. Think of an interaction I had today. Do at least one positive interaction. So tonight I'll write this date. Who was I with? What did I do? How did I interact? How did I feel? So I'm going to, I am going to, I have got a closets full of um, old loose leaf binders. Everybody has closets of old loose leaf binders. So I, and I also have a three hole puncher. So I'll go make a bunch of these and I'll put some lined paper in between each one in case I have to journal after it. And I'm going to try to do one at one of these sheets every night this week. Does that interest you to do that? And then come next week with it. Because we'll go on and we'll talk about the next paramita or two. But you will have been doing the study of them all week. And I really think this is a, a really extraordinary um, other whole dimension of practice. Because we talk about perfecting the paramitas and how will we do them. But here it is concrete. You sit down at the end of the day. And here's Kathy said, I just had an interaction with my husband. And in them, of these ten elements, nine were not present. So, you know, when you think about that, and it's, uh, I, uh, and, you, and you did say it's humbling. And I have taken so much solace out of the big difference between feeling humbled and feeling humiliated. And uh, I, when I am humbled, I am really inspired about there's work to be done. I see it. I can do it. That's different from feeling humiliated. And uh, uh, especially if I'm doing it myself and I don't have to put it on the front of the independent journal. I don't have to be humiliated. I wouldn't even feel humiliated there. Maybe I would. I don't know. But better off it's only in my journal and with you. But if it's all right with you, will you work with this with me for a few weeks at least? Keep a little more. You don't have to put it in a journal. You don't have to do it with a three-hole binder. Although I will. It's a nice, you know, I like I'm, I actually like going to school and punching holes in binders. <laughs> it's my thing. And I'm very, very, very um, taken by this, Kathy. Thank you very much. I already thought to myself, as Betty said, we need a, uh, a manual. And I thought often there are uh, practice manuals that go along with books. So I'm already thinking, aha, uh -huh, maybe we'll work on it. And then I'll, I'll call the attention of my editors and say, do you want a practice manual that I'll write the foreword to? And then it'll be a practice manual. And who knows? You know, the book industry is weird these days. But that's a very interesting idea. Uh, that's a very interesting idea. That's a really hands-on way. It appeals to me tremendously. And I think that it would appeal even if I was not on all of these mind-altering drugs. So. <laughs> So was I too speedy today? Or yeah. was <laughs> By next week, I should have come down. It's a remarkable thing, these, these drugs. I wonder what people did. I, well, they suffered before these kinds of drugs. 
And every time that um, every time that uh, the, the the two parts, every time that I that I need some sort of uh, modern medical intervention, in, in this case, a diagnosis and the right drugs for what I have, I am so grateful for my body for continuing to work and to heal, for the availability and know-how in the modern community of how to identify and address various kinds of unusual situations, for the uh, ability to have uh, health care, to pay for it, and providers. When I am in the dentist, because this is a special kind of a mouth disease kind of thing, I think to myself, I, I don't know what percentage of the world point what percentage of the world knows about dentists, ever saw a dentist, ever could go to have even a dental procedure done to correct something, not, not, and I go to have a preventive procedure so that I won't lose my teeth, never mind even restoring them. And I sit at the dentist and I think about the small number, percentage of people in this world who can do that. You know, so many people can't drink clean water or, or uh, have enough to eat to be able to do a thing like that. I am both tremendously grateful for human ingenuity and invention and the desire to heal and my ability to take advantage of it and tremendously resolved to do something so that the world is a place where we share that ability and that beneficence with other people so that everybody could finish their life with their own teeth and not in pain, any more pain than we have to do in this human life. So I think both inspires me to do something more. So I'll be unspeeded by next week. <laughs> Oh, yeah, there's a book exchange. Next week. Um, yes, yes, yes. Here's the book exchange. How many people notice that there are books all over the table back there? How many people in, in them arose a, a desire to go and have a book as a present? <laughs> you can have a book as a present as you leave. Go and look. If you brought a book, you can have a book as a present. If you didn't bring a book, it is absolutely a given... Oh, but it was a, it's, a, it's not only a reuse of the world's resources with everybody sharing what they're ready to share with other people and they don't know who even gets it, but it's also um, it's, it's a way of experiencing the joy of generosity. And next week is our last week of that. Next week is the last week I'm here. It's the last week, it's last yeah, week I'm Donald here. Is Unless Donald continues. I'll ask him before next week if he wants to. Are you enjoying that? Did you take home good books last week? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I invite you, please, this week, go through as part of your homework and take everything that you are ready to not have in your library and put it into somebody else's library. It's a gift given by a secret admirer. Nobody knows who gave it. They don't know who they got it from, and you can take it. And may the merit of our goodwill and our practice and our devotion be offered freely to all beings in the world for the benefit of all beings. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings come to the end of suffering.
may all be. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.